I think those last two hymns beautifully summarize the subject of last week's sermon and uh, this week's sermon. Uh, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17, making our way through this uh, verse by verse, but let's pick up at verse 33. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk on these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And it is our desire to grow as we understand it. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds, enable me to clearly articulate the things that you have put upon my heart. And Father, that you would be pleased to receive the responses of our worship as we uh, look at the awesome uh, character of uh, your covenant relationship with us. We love you and we bless you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> By the way, um, I've been trying to make uh, better youth notes, got some good feedback last time, and uh, how to make things a little bit easier for the younger uh, kids. And feel free to keep uh, bringing these back. I'm dense, uh, you know, until I uh, kind of figure this out. Uh, but uh, we do want them to be able to interact with the text and um, uh, be able to grow right along with the rest of us. Now, this is... Uh, a chapter that you almost hate to divide up because it's such a marvelous story. But uh, there are a lot of lessons that we would miss if we just preach on the whole story at a time. So we've been breaking the chapter up and we've been uh, looking. Uh, the first one actually was on the whole subject of the Protestant work ethic. And there's tons of practical things in this chapter. But we've also been looking at faith. And we saw, first of all, that faith... Uh, was manifested in David's faithfulness, faithfulness in the ordinary things of life. And I think it's important that we remember faith is not just for the big battles of life. Every moment of every day, God calls us to walk by faith. In fact, Romans says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So automatically, we need to be living our lives uh, before the Lord. That's what stewardship is, doing everything you do as unto the Lord. Then uh, last week, we looked at David's faith manifested in vision. He was able to see things that others were not able to see. And Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that without that visionary faith, uh, it is impossible to please God. 
Today we're going to be seeing that faith manifested in the courage of David. And yes, you've guessed it, I consider courage to be one of those essential features of faith, and that may surprise you, but uh, throughout the Scripture you will see that this is true. Uh, One of the reasons why Revelation 21 lists cowardice at the top of the list of sins that keep people from heaven is that cowardice is the antithesis of faith. Faith uh, is always rewarded by God, always. It's almost like it demands to be fulfilled. When God gives us faith, it's because He's wanting us to, to, to receive something. But fear is very similar. As the antithesis of faith, fear almost demands to be fulfilled as well. And it's remarkable how many times people receive the things that they fear. It's just like a, a kind of inverse faith. They receive it. Even uh, that great man Job said, For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. That was Job 3, verse 25, right at the beginning. He said, I feared it, and that's the way it's happened. And so fear is like faith. It almost demands to be fulfilled. So this is not something you can just ignore. Courageous faith is something every one of us should desire to put on. And when we find our courage diminishing and fear beginning to rise, you know that your faith is, is trembling. Your faith is um, faltering. Now, the first thing I want to point out in this passage is that there will inevitably be challenges to your faith. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Uh, Even when your faith feels very strong uh, in the Lord, you're convinced God is going to do something. There's going to be an Eliab who's going to come along and who's going to mock you and who's going to do character assassination and shred your vision to pieces and kind of take the wind out of your sails. And you're going to feel that faith diminishing and fear creeping in to replace that faith. Now, here he was not successful. He was not successful at all with David, but that does not mean Satan's going to give up. Uh, Satan will do everything he can to keep you from living by faith because that is going to mean his defeat if you walk by faith. And so uh, if you're not uh, brought to fear instead of faith with a Goliath, he'll try to do it with an Eliab. And if he's not successful with that, he'll bring somebody else along, maybe an authority figure in your life that you respect. And that's what's going on in verses 32 and 33. It says, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David, you're naive. You're inexperienced. You're a youth. Put these crazy ideas out of your mind. I sometimes wonder, you know, how many of you youth feel like Uh, You're not able to stretch your wings of faith because the people who love you are fearful for you, okay? They're trying to protect you. Now, I think these words that Saul speaks here were well-intentioned. You know, he he loves his uh, little armor bearer. He's not been around very long, and he doesn't want to lose him. And so it's very well-intentioned, but I think Satan, no doubt, hoped that these words would bring David to fear, would take away... Uh, his faith. And one of the things I have found over the years is that the most devastating challenges to our faith don't come from the world out there. A lot of times we can handle that. They come from our loved ones. They come from within the church. That's where our theology many times is challenged. 
Uh, that's where uh, people uh, uh, try to convince us to play it safe and to have lesser goals. Uh, try not to do anything risky. Okay, why? Because they love you. They're fearful for you. And um, uh, the arguments that they give on a horizontal level make a lot of sense, a lot of common sense. But here's the point. Faith transcends common sense because faith is helping us to operate in terms of things unseen. Remember, we talked about a visionary faith that enables us to see things that are not there. The kingdom the whole kingdom that God has given to us is living by faith and not by sight. Now, I love the definition of the kingdom as given by Tim Keller. You'd almost think he was a post-millennialist. Maybe he's almost there, but uh, here's how his definition goes. The kingdom is the renewal of the whole world. So we're, we're talking about very tangible things around us that we can see, we can smell, we can touch, we can taste, we can listen to. He says the kingdom is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. And it takes faith to see that. He says the kingdom is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. And that's exactly what the Lord's Prayer says. Thy kingdom come. That's the invasion of God's kingdom into planet earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's perfectly being done in heaven, and we're seeking to be a part of this process of these supernatural forces, these heavenly forces, transforming planet earth. That is what the kingdom uh, is about. Now, Martin Luther was a man who could see that, and many people told Martin Luther that he could not go to the diet of worms. He says, you're going to die. They're going to kill you, and uh, you need to play it more safe. Uh, you need to consider your own safety, the safety of your church. But Martin Luther realized he had to do something. He had to do something. Uh, they were saying, just like uh, uh, Saul was saying to David, you can't do it, don't even try, don't even attempt it. And uh, Luther responded, you can expect from me everything save fear or recantation. I shall not flee, much less recant. I will go to worms if there were as many devils there as there are tiles on the roofs of the houses. He was feeling like God was calling him to do this, and he had to do something to hold this Protestant nation together. But here was the problem of his testimony. He said it wasn't so much the opposition of the world. It was his friends challenged to his own faith that many times tempted him to lose courage. It can so easily happen. In Acts 21, verse 13, Paul told his friends who had been trying to get him to not go to Jerusalem because they were afraid for him. They said, you're going to die. Here's what Paul said to them. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he realizes even his close friends could be used by, uh, by Satan to be a challenge to his courageous faith. And the same can be too, true for any of us, for any of you. The world will tell you, you can't do it. And uh, you, you just figure, okay, that's the world. Of course they're going to think that. You're not going to be affected as much by that. But when your friends, your loved ones, your church tells you the same thing, it's very hard uh, to, to stand up to it. And so there's a very real sense in which your family and your church 
is a beautiful environment in which to stretch your wings of faith. But it's also a place where your faith can be killed. So you just got to be aware of that. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, you need to worry about that. No, it's a place where you just need to be aware. Even here, it's not safe. Even here, my faith can be challenged. But this is a perfect environment in which I can stretch my wings of faith and trust uh, in the in the Lord. Samuel Johnson once said, nothing will ever be accomplished if every objection must be overcome. So you're never going to be able to give answers adequately to uh, answer every objection that people will give to you. Uh, you just need to walk in faith. Now, if they bring an objection from Scripture, yes, listen to that, right? Uh, because uh, then if we're disobeying the Scripture, again, it's presumption, it's not faith. Now, the second thing we see in this passage is how God prepared David's faith to be able to stand up on this day, and he prepared David through adversity. Now, that's an interesting thought. We many times think adversity is an enemy. It's not. It's a friend. It's something that God uses to cause us to grow uh, in our faith. And uh, not only does uh, adversity help the Christian, so important is adversity to the growth of faith. Many times you will find that God brings huge adversity to cause unbelievers to come to faith, to come to a saving knowledge of Him. In uh, early America, there was a, uh, a family, there was a farmer who had four, uh, three sons, uh, John, Jim, and Sam, and uh, they didn't know the Lord, uh, they didn't walk with the Lord, um, and uh, the pastor tried over and over to invite them to come to church, and the various members were praying for this family's salvation, and it just seemed nothing, nothing worked, they had no interest whatsoever. And at one uh, point, a rattlesnake uh, bit Sam, and they called the doctor in, and uh, the doctor did what he could, but it looked like Sam was going to die. So they quickly called the preacher to come and pray for him, thinking that Sam was dying. Uh, the pastor came in, and after some brief greetings, he prayed these words. O wise and righteous Father, we thank Thee that in Thy wisdom Thou didst send this rattlesnake to bite Sam. <laughs> He has never been inside the church, and it's doubtful that he has in all this time ever prayed or even acknowledged thine existence. Now we trust that this experience will be a valuable lesson to him and will lead to his genuine repentance. And now, O oh Father, wilt thou send another rattlesnake to bite Jim? <laughs> and another to bite John. And another really big one to bite the old man. <laughs> For years we've done everything we know to get them to turn to thee, but all in vain. It seems, therefore, that what all our combined efforts could not do, this rattlesnake has done. We thus conclude that the only thing that will do this family any real good is rattlesnakes. <laughs> so, Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and sometimes God does have to send proverbial rattlesnakes to lead people to Jesus, uh, to lead them to faith. But sometimes he has to send proverbial rattlesnakes and lions and bears to cause Christians to grow in faith. And depending on how we respond to those lions and bears will depend on how many he has to bring uh, into our lives. And uh, he usually does this because we prefer the status quo. We prefer not to grow. It's uncomfortable to grow, right? We prefer things just the way that they are, but uh, how we handle these lions and these bears makes a big, big difference. Let's read verses 34 through 36. But David said to Saul, 
your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is kill some myths that have arisen concerning uh, David and Goliath and his uh, sling. Uh, It would not have been thought strange at all that a shepherd would try to kill a lion uh, or a bear uh, with his sling uh, back in those days. This was not anything like the rubber slingshots that I grew up with, uh, you know, where you could uh, kill a bird. You could never kill a beast like this with a rubber slingshot. But these slings were long uh, uh, cords with a leather pouch at the bottom that you put a big stone into, and they were amazing, amazing uh, weapons. I've got a book that describes all of these, uh, these slings and how to use them. Uh, even if every other weapon is uh, confiscated, you'll never be able to confiscate uh, slings. You know, you can make them out of bedsheets. I mean, you can make them out of anything. Amazing weapons. But he gives a history of them, how to use them. And uh, let me just give you a verse that shows how the Israelites used them. Judges 20, verse 16 says that the Benjamite army had, quote, 700 select men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. That's a pretty good aim, hair's breadth and never miss. Every single time they would hit the shot. They were very accurate and they were deadly, uh, deadly uh, weapons. Slingers uh, usually would sling stones, and I've given some pictures there of uh, uh, sling stones from Israel. But they would usually sling stones anywhere ranging from the size of a billiard ball to the much more common size of a tennis ball. Most of the the sling stones that have been dug up in Israel are the size of a tennis ball. And my book says that in about two hours of practice, most people, if they're coordinated at all, most people within two hours of practice should be able to hit a trunk of a tree from 50 yards, 150 feet, 100% of the time. It is way, way, way easier to learn how to use a sling than it is to use how to uh, learn how to use a bow and an arrow. Uh, you can pick it up very, very quickly. And it points out that fairly quickly you can increase your velocity from 60 miles per hour to over 100 miles per hour without a lot of practice. But expert slingers can sling those stones more than 1,500 feet at speeds exceeding 250 miles per hour. For example, back in uh, 2006, uh, Jerzy Gasparowicz uh, threw a lead, uh, lead shot. He used a sidearm. There is different, there's underhanded, there's overhanded, there's a mix. He used a sidearm, and he threw it 505 meters at 1,656 feet. That's a long ways. And when those stones hit... They hit with incredible, incredible power. Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea, that that verse I quoted earlier, just in the first battle, those Benjamites killed 22,000 men. Uh, I just happened to read uh, about uh, some of the battles in in Peru. The conquistadors uh, were, were battling there. And one of these guys happened to be writing some notes back to his family and uh, he, he was talking about these guys slinging their stones with such force that it instantly killed the horse that he was riding on. So it would not have been a surprise at all to these people that a shepherd uh, would be uh, willing to try to kill a lion uh, or a bear. Do not think that David is foolishly going up, you know, with one of these kinds of slingshots. 
No, there was, a, there was some semblance of sanity to what he was doing, even though it was a scary thing. But David did have some strength. Apparently, there was at least one of these lions that David did not kill. He wounded it, and the lion turned on him. And uh, David, by God's help, grabbed the lion by the beard and finished him off with something, with a knife or something else. We're not told what he finished him off with. Okay, the next verse indicates that David had been used to fighting animals. This was not just a one-time event. Uh, in In the New King James here, it's not really as clear, though you can get it from there once I I read the literal Hebrew. Hebrew says literally, your servant has killed both lions and bears. It's plural. So he's killed at least two lions and two bears, maybe more. We're not told. And so he's had testings. He's had plenty of practice going into this battle with Goliath. He goes on, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. So his impulse to protect his own sheep is now something that God is stirring up within him to protect the sheep of Israel. And uh, I think the author is very deliberately crafting this in a way where people will realize this battle against Goliath is preparing David to later, when it's God's timing, to later become the shepherd of Israel. Now, it's how we handle our lions and bears that will determine whether you've got the courage to take on a Goliath. Uh, Your lion may be a powerful, besetting sin that's just pulling and pulling away at your lust, trying to take you into captivity. And it's very easy to grow weary and to grow tired and just give up just to give in uh, to the sin. God does not want you to do that. He wants you to take on those wild animals. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He says He wants you to take that battle against sin so seriously, it's either that animal's blood or it's your blood. But He wants you not to be half-hearted in the battle. Now, it's highly unlikely you're going to have identical trials to the ones that David went through, but it is guaranteed God is going to bring trials and testings into your life. Why? Because he wants you to walk by faith. When someone asked George Mueller, uh, and those of you who don't know George Mueller, you ought to read his biography. He's just an amazing man of, of faith. But he wasn't always that way. He had weak faith to start with. But anyway, somebody asked him, how do you grow strong in faith? He answered, the only way to know strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm through severe testings. Now, we don't like news like that. (laughs) We want strong faith to come instantly, you know. We just, why don't you just give it to me, Lord, and then I'll take on my Goliath. And God says, no, you got to learn it just like everybody else has learned it. I'm going to put smaller... testings into your life. Then I'm going to put lions and bears into your life. Then I'll bring along your Goliath. But you've got to learn this and how we respond. If we respond sinfully to a testing, our faith will diminish. If we respond in a godly way to a testing, our faith will grow. But our faith is either sliding backwards or it's growing. 
And a lot of times God causes our faith to grow through the miserable battles we're going through every single day when we're trying to respond in a godly way rather than a complaining, grumbling way over our sicknesses and our headaches and the screaming kids and the coworker who's gotten mad at me and, and uh, uh, you know, financial losses and other things like that. And God says, no, these are little, little lions. You know, they're not big ones, but these are ones in which I'm testing your faith. Are you going to grow or are you going to allow your faith to go backwards? Many of you have battle scars from your proverbial lions and bears, the battles that you have taken on, and you're wondering, Lord, why do you allow me to go through these things? I don't want this kind of stuff in my life. And God says, I do it because I love you. I do it because I want you to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's critical that we get into the battle, that we not become armchair warriors. I love the admonition to the nation of Teddy Roosevelt. He said, it is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by the dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, and come short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails at least, fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. So if you've been holding off on fighting in a worthy cause, if you've been just fighting, you know, without fighting against sin very enthusiastically, if you've been avoiding your lions or your bears, I would urge you to reconsider. God's brought them there to strengthen you in your faith. And if we have a, are to have a courageous faith that pleases God, then we've got to be willing to accept the battlefield God's given to us today. Now, there's a third principle that I see in this courageous faith, and if you're filling out the crossword puzzle, the, the word is here. David did not have a faith in himself, and he did not have a faith in his faith. <laughs> he had a faith in God. The object of his faith was God. Look at verse 37. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear... He will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. Now, we saw last week that God had given him prophetic revelations, assurances that he would be king, which means he's going to get through this battle. He's invincible in a sense. Now, maybe he'll get hurt and other things might happen, but he will survive this battle. And so there's a sense in which he is invincible. And some of you might think, you know, I could be courageous if I knew that I was invincible. I think that, that's not necessarily the case. But you have almost exactly the same promise because Romans 8.28 says it is guaranteed that nothing can happen to you that's not for your good and for the glory of God. Here's what one wise um, theologian has said. He said, that promise by itself is good enough. But he says, I am immortal until my work is done. I am immortal until my work is done. Now, if you've got that kind of a faith, you will be courageous. You will be. And this is true for any stage of our, uh, of our faith. When I was a kid, 
I lacked assurance of my salvation. I kept going forward and getting saved, quote-unquote, over and over again, and uh, was uh, just terribly troubled over this. And there were people who were trying to help me. And one uh, well-meaning uh, individual, he told me, well, I'm just tired of this, Phil. I've made a little card for you. It says, I, Philip Kaiser, have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I have been born again. And I signed my name. And he says, anytime you doubt your, 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 that, you're, that you're saved, he says, look at that card and you'll say, oh yeah, I believe. Well, it didn't help me at all because I was always wondering, was that a genuine faith? <laughs> you know, did I have a genuine repentance back then? And somebody very wisely told me, Phil, maybe you aren't saved because you have a faith in your faith. What does real faith do? It's looking to God right now. It's not just a one-time event. It's constantly trusting the Lord. He says it doesn't matter whether you believed right, right back then. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ right now? And that was something that completely resolved the problem in my mind. Faith is not fixed on myself. It's not fixed on whether I believed in the past. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. And that's true not just in how we get saved. It's true for our sanctification. It's faith in God. It's true for any victorious faith that we have. It's faith in God. And so I think it's a really important point to, to remember. Here's the last words that um, Martin Luther's wife, Catherine von Bora, said just before she was dying. She said, I will stick to Christ as a burr to a topcoat. I think those are great words, great words to those who want to live by faith. It's got to be focused on Christ every moment. The fourth principle is that faith must be unleashed into action. It's a dead faith or it's a sick faith if it is not unleashed into action. It's in action, really, that our courage is tested. Now, in the last part of verse 37, it says, And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So what Saul was doing is he was giving David permission to be the representative who would fight for Israel out there. But I love those words where he says, go and the Lord be with you. Faith is not simply trusting Christ with no action, nor is it engaging an action without leaning upon the Lord. It's those two that are in it together. It is going into action, trusting the Lord to work through our actions. Uh, Oliver Cromwell tried to tie those things together when he encouraged his troops and they're battling against the, the British army. And he told them, trust God and keep your powder dry. Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're about here. And, and we too must allow our faith to result in action if we're to grow from faith to faith and from strength to strength. Just read through the, uh, the, the chapter on faith, Hebrews 11, and you will find that most of the examples, if not all of the examples of faith there, are examples of faith that is unleashed into action. James says, if your faith has no action, it's a dead faith. It's a counterfeit faith. So let me just give, give an example. If you're trying to trust God for your finances, then God, the scriptures would say, go and the Lord be with you. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, do everything that you can. Keep a budget. Try to cut the costs. Uh, try to do savings. Do extra works. And as you are engaged in those things, trust the Lord to be with you, to be prospering the things that you are engaging in. <clears throat> so 
It's presumption. If you have faith that has no action, it's not faith at all. The last principle on faith that I want to look at today is that faith never despises being fully equipped, but it is patient to work within the limits of what God has allowed to date. For example, the, uh, when God tells the Israelites to go out into battle, He makes clear it's not by their right arm of strength, it's not by their sword or their arrow, and yet He tells them, take arrows, take swords, take all of these weapons. But there were certain weapons, He told them, I don't want you to multiply. I don't want you to be multiplying horses and, and chariots and having vast arrays of those things. <clears throat> and so we can't put on armor or we can't put on things that God says... I don't want you using that. We must put on all of the means that God has said we may use. That's the principle. Now, we're going to look, first of all, at the equipment that he refuses to take. Verse 38, So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. Now, I wonder if Saul knew or understood the significance of these actions. Most commentators point out that in the ancient Near East, this was really symbolism that David would be the heir to the throne. He was going to take over the position that that Saul would have. Now, somehow I suspect that Saul was not doing this self-consciously. He may have. But according to commentators, Jonathan definitely was doing it self-consciously, maybe in in imitation of his father. But take a look at 1 Samuel 18 and verse 4. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, in the previous verse, he's making a covenant with David, but he's taking off this clothes. He's giving it to David. This was a self-conscious statement by Jonathan. Jonathan, I know God wants you to be the heir. I'm going to give you my position. I'm on your side. I'm all for you. I'm okay with that. Sometime I hope I can preach on the wonderful heart that Jonathan has in lifting up uh, David, even though David is way his junior. He's way older. Uh, But uh, in in any case, it was very self-conscious. Now, here it's possible David does it, I mean, Saul does it unwittingly. And commentators are divided on that. Youngblood, for example, says, oh yeah, he he probably did it consciously. He was trying to unite himself with David so that if David wins, I can take the credit. Uh, Who knows? I I don't know. But I think there's a symbolism here that God gives that David was indeed going to be the uh, the future king of Israel. Now, here's the interesting thing. David refuses to take the clothing. And if you look in the margin, uh, the first word armor is literally clothing. He refuses to take the clothing, the armor, or the weapons. Uh, First of all, he doesn't want to prematurely take royal garments before he is ready. This is not God's timing. He does not want to run ahead of God. And to me, this shows incredible maturity. So many times, Christians are willing to be elevated to positions that they are not ready for. Call it the Peter principle. You know, they're elevated above their competencies, and they end up being miserable and absolutely hating their jobs. Uh, But David submitted to God's will and God's timing. He was only willing to take the robes and the equipment when it was God's timing. Second, David is not willing to fight with what he has not tested. And this is in verse 39. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. David believes in being equipped, 
But he does not try to wear equipment that God has not yet trained him in. And this is another thing that distinguishes between faith and presumption. Faith never despises means, but faith is not going to say means is the be-all and the end-all. I've got to have better and better and better means. It's using means, the means that God allows, but it will not take on the means that God does not allow. And so if your trust is in the means rather than the God who works through the means, uh, you're not exercising faith properly. But let's look next at the means that faith was indeed willing to use. In verse 40, we see David's not opposed to using means, not at all. He uses the means that he's been trained in. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. Now, David has everything he needs to kill this giant. That's the means. And he has trained himself in the use of that means. And so again, faith never goes out naked. That's the principle. It does not go out naked. It's willing to equip itself with all of the means that God has put at his disposal. Uh, One time near the, I think maybe year two of this church that we had started here, there was a guy that came by the office and he wanted some money. And as I tried to find out what the story was, he, he hadn't eaten in some time, so we definitely, we fed him, we gave him some food. But he was a Christian who had decided it would just be fun to travel across the country and I'm just going to trust God. He didn't have any money, had a, you know, some gas in the, in the tank, and then he'd run out of money and every city he'd come to would be bumming off of churches trying to get them across the country. I said, well, why are you going over there? Is there a job over there? Well, no, not necessarily, but I'll look for a job when I get there. And so I was trying to tell him the difference between faith and presumption. And I was saying, well, maybe we ought to get you a job here so you can earn up some money and then go over to California. No, no, no. I need to just trust God. He was going out on naked faith. That is not biblical. That is not biblical at all. Uh, let, me, let me give you some scripture that, uh, that some people use to try to say we can go out with naked faith. Jesus sent out his disciples without knapsack, gold, or weapons, and he taught them when they go out like this, they can trust him to provide for them. So he's saying, I'm giving you a lesson here, but the thing I want to point out is God specifically commanded them not to take those. Okay, if God commands us to have no means, praise God, uh, he will provide for us. But then Jesus said, now that I am leaving you, here is the permanent principle that I want you to operate from. And this is in Luke 22, verse 36. He says, basically, don't be presumptuous. Use all the means at your disposal. He says, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. He's saying, the principle is not you can be presumptuous. If all means are taken away from you providential and you have no means at your disposal, yes, I will take care of you. But if you've got means, don't go out naked. Use those means. Do not be presumptuous. Another example would be Satan tempting Jesus to be presumptuous when he told him to cast himself off the top of the temple, right? He said, have faith in God. Doesn't the scripture say that the angels will bear you up so you don't dash your feet? Test them out. And what was Jesus' response? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
Okay? He recognized the difference between presumption and, and faith. And so faith is willing to be fully equipped, but it's only willing to be equipped with the tools that God himself has authorized. So it's not faith if um, you use tools that God has forbidden. You're desperate. You're thinking, I've got I to take whatever just so I can survive. That's not faith. Nor is it faith to go out and say, eh, I'm not going to use any tools. I'm just going to will Goliath to be dead. You know, I'm not going to use a slingshot. That, that's not faith either. The last evidence of this human responsibility is seen in the last phrase of verse 40 and then in verse 41. It says, And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. David got into the arena, and he stood fast even when danger was approaching. And it was approaching. Uh, I mean, that would be intimidating, have this giant coming, uh, coming at you. Now, he definitely didn't seem like much to Goliath, and he de- definitely didn't seem like much to the Israelites. But unlike the Israelites, he was willing to get into the arena and to get dirty and maybe even to get bloody. He was willing to get out there. It's easy for an Eliab to criticize David as not having what it takes to be a soldier. It's easy for a Saul to say, nah, I don't think that you can do it. It's very easy for you as Reformed Christians to criticize an Arminian who's maybe not doing evangelism just quite properly, and God would say, yeah, but at least he's doing the evangelism. He's in the arena, right? Are you? Uh, I, I tried to find where the illustration was, but D.L. Moody, and I, I, I wasn't able to find it, but D.L. Moody uh, was once uh, criticized by somebody who came up to him and said, you know, I don't think the, the, the way that you're doing evangelism is biblical. I don't like your method of evangelism. And D.L. Moody responded to him and said, and he knew this guy, he said, well, I don't like the evangelism of D.L. Moody either. But I like the evangelism of D.L. Moody better than the non-evangelism of you, or something to that effect. And so the point is, are you in the arena? Faith does not stand on the sidelines criticizing like uh, we, we like to do with football players and how we would do things better than <laughs> what, the, what they have done. No, faith gets in there, and it gets its hands dirty. Let me end by reading that quote from Teddy Roosevelt once again. It is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by the dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. And my charge to you is to not be cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Instead, I would urge you, get into the arena with a courageous faith, knowing that if God is for you, who can be against you? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and all of the examples of people, frail people like us, who yet did valiantly. 
Uh, And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to not only have the common faith of the first sermon and the visionary faith of last week, but also the courageous faith that we see in David this week. Help us, Father, to have a full orb faith, not a sick faith, not a dead faith, but a faith that takes us from triumph unto triumph. Father, it matters not uh, what our numbers might be uh, because as Jonathan realized when he came with faith against that garrison, that you save with many or with few, it really doesn't matter. And so, Father, whether you decide to use a small Gideon's army or whether you decide to have a massive uh, turning of the hearts of Americans around, we pray that you would cause the giants in this land to fall, the giants of false religions, the giants of humanism, the giants of statism, the giants of homosexuality and abortion and all of these other things that seem so impossible to conquer and which have caused the hearts of Christians uh, to faint. Uh, We pray, O Father, that your church would take these on in faith, not with despair, but realizing that if you are for us, who can be against us? Father, may we take on the giants and the lions and the bears that you have brought into our own lives. If there are any in this congregation who have despaired of ever overcoming some besetting sin, we pray that uh, they would put on the full equipment that you have given to, uh, to them. And if they're not aware of that equipment, that they would uh, seek advice from the elders on how uh, to equip themselves with the armor of God. And But Father, not trusting that armor, but trusting you and going forth in your strength. Cause us to be a strong people, Father. The people totally dedicated to you, out and out for King Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.